This time of the year is uh, kind of glorious and confusing all at the same time because it has been taken over and commercialized to such an extent that we kind of lose sometimes the, the spiritual foundation on which it grew. And so this morning I want us to grab a hold of that and think about it. I'm going to be focusing on particularly three prophecies that Matthew mentions in the first two, ver- two chapters of his uh, gospel, and we'll go there, but, but I want us to, to, to pick up the threads. Uh, we have several visitors this morning. Over the last three weeks, what we've been doing is following the major themes that revolve around how the early church explained its faith. Something happened to them that, that they just couldn't understand. They tried to, tried to get a hold of it. They tried to, to be able to express it and explain it and defend it uh, to their neighbors and, and to uh, their fellow countrymen in the case of the early days of the church when they were speaking in synagogues, trying to convince each other that, that this is what uh, God had intended all along. And those themes that they kept going back to were the creation. God had an intention. He had a design. He had a, he had a goal in mind when he created human beings. And he wanted human beings to be a certain kind of life on this earth. He wanted it to be where heaven and earth come together, where spirit and body come together, where God is expressed in his grand, glorious cosmic temple called the earth. And as God built it and he set man inside of it, he called it the image of God. We want to have a place where We understand who we are and who we're made to be. That's creation, and that's what they went back to, and they began to to use that theme, and it's wrapped all the way through the New Testament, all the way through their story. And then they picked up on the theme and the promise to David where God says, no, you won't build me a house. I'll build you a house. I'll build you a line. I'll build you a heritage, an inheritance of kings who will understand and learn from me how to exercise authority, how to bring the people together, how not to be kings like the nation's kings, where they rule over people, but be servants like you are, David. And then the other, as you come, is is the theme of the prophet Isaiah as he begins to talk about the suffering element this, this king who's going to come into the world is going to be a suffering king. You go, well, why is that? Well, as we explored it, it's because how can you love without hurting for someone? The more you love someone, the more they, hurt, they can hurt you, the deeper they can hurt you, the deeper you're willing to be hurt in their service. Isn't that true? Love implies suffering. At least it is in our world because we don't love perfectly and we don't love perfect people. But I do pretty good at it. No, no. Susan's not here, so I can say that. I just want you to see that those three themes are the themes that they go back to and they go into the prophets and they say, this is what God was doing all along. We messed it up and he's trying to put it back together again and trying to make us whole again and trying to save us and redeem us and he has this plan well it comes together in a birth that's where it starts all those themes are are initiated when Jesus joins us and it's remarkable that he comes as a child 
You think about that for a minute. He could have ridden in on a heavenly stallion with angel armies and said, you guys got it messed up. We're going to fix this thing right here, right now. Anybody that doesn't go along, you know, there's the door. And by the way, when you step outside, don't expect to hit the ground. He didn't come that way. He comes as a baby. As a baby. You know how messy babies are? He was a messy baby. He had nappies. He threw up on his mom and dad. You know how I know I had four kids? I know what babies do. And it's all not pretty and nice. Sometimes they're not even cute. God gave them big eyes so they could look up at you and not be slapped around, you know, left outside on the porch. I'm exaggerating. But I want you to see God comes into our world as one of us the way we come into this world. In all the weakness that implies as a human being. That's what this story is all about today. And I want us to keep that in the framework. I want us to understand that. I want us to, to, to begin there. I want to set the stage a little bit because this, this story of birth comes with a whole long chain of history. And I'm not going to start in Genesis. I'll save you that. I want you to start with this guy. None of you have ever heard of him, Alexander Janus. You don't need to hear about him. But I want you to understand that it's during his reign as one of the Maccabean kings that he takes back Galilee and he begins to, to put Hebrew families from the south back in the north. Now, no government has ever had the policy of taking over land from natives and re, 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 replanting it with their own clan, right? That's never happened in the history of the world. But that's what he did. And as, as he does it, he takes families and offers them land in the north. That's 90 miles, 90 miles, about 90 years before Jesus is born. He starts villages around the Sea of Galilee, and he starts villages in the north. And there's a group of people that end up in this little town called Netzeroth. You know it as Nazareth. And that's how the grandfathers and the great-grandfathers of Joseph and Mary ended up in Galilee and not in Bethlehem. And, and, and as the story goes, that's called Branch Town. Now remember that. The Netzer is a branch because that's going to come into play here pretty soon. And as they establish that town and as they build it, that village and the families survive, Herod decides he's going to cooperate with Augustus Caesar because Augustus Caesar has this great plan. It's called taxation. Now governments are never into taxation. But Herod always looks for a money, a way to get money out of his folks. He, he's one of the wealthy kings in the East because he sets on all kinds of trade routes, and there's, a, there's not a tax that he doesn't collect. And so he declares that in his country, he's going to go along with what Caesar's doing in the rest of the world, and he sends out a thing that says, you have to go back to your hometown. Now you know why Joseph and Mary go back to Bethlehem because that's where they came from. That's where their families came from. And the story begins by them going back to Bethlehem. Where are they headed? Back to family. You see all the families here today? 
Some of you came in from Chicago and some from other places that I probably don't know, and I'm headed out of town to go meet my folks from Dallas here next week, and, and, and families get back together, and so they go back. Where is, where's, where, where is Joseph and Mary headed? Back to the bosom of their family, their extended family. How do I know that? Well, Netzer applies to a prophecy about the coming king. And there's a bunch of people who named their town King Town, Branch Town. Only the king comes from what tribe? Judah. From what family? Jesse. Guess who lives in Bethlehem? Jesse, who has a little boy named David. That's why I know that Netzer Town is populated by people from Bethlehem. Okay? So I want you to see the story as it develops. That's the big context, the big picture. And, and what begins to happen is as they go back to taxes, they're going back to their family. There's no rush. There's a two- or three-year period that they can go back to pay their taxes. They don't have to go overnight. There's no rush to, to get to Jerusalem, to, from Nazareth to, to Bethlehem. They decide to go. Mary's already traveled down that way once to see Elizabeth. She's going a little bit farther. It's only 90 miles. It's not that far from here to Nevada. You know, not, not that far. And as, as, you, as you see them gather and they begin to go, they, they go back to their tribe. They go back to where their great-great-great-great-grandmother Rachel was buried when she died, Jacob's wife. You go, wow, that's roots, isn't it? That's where they go. She's buried there. Jesse was raised his family there. David was born there. That's where they're headed. What's going to happen when they get home? Same thing happens when your family gets in from Chicago. Oh, we're so glad to see you. Come on in. We've got a place for you. Except they get that. Well, we'll get to that part of the story pretty soon. And as, as they come to town, they are, they are within people they know. And as Matthew begins to tell the story, he says, I want to start with the genealogy. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He tells you everything in the first sentence you need to know. Everything. He's Messiah. Wow. Right flat out in front of your face. Huge claim. What does that mean? He's the descendant of David. He's going to be the son of God who comes as suffering servant who will rebuild creation. That's all right there in that sentence. And as you, as you see that story begin to unfold, he adds five women to his list. You don't do that in an ancient genealogy, ever. Totally out of bounds. And look at the five women he picks. He doesn't start with Sarah, great woman of the faith, Rebecca, you know, he, Rachel. He doesn't start. He starts with Tamar. Anybody know Tamar? Uh, she was pretty tricky. She got pregnant by her father-in-law who wouldn't, yeah. And you go, why in the world would he want to tell you about that story in this story of the Messiah's lineage? Because this is your resume. This is your CV. In the ancient world, you are who your tribe is and who your ancestors were. 
It's not what you accomplished. It's not what school you went to. It's not what jobs you held. It's your genealogy. That's it. That's all you need to know. And so he says, Tamar, Rahab. You ever heard of Rahab? Jericho, red cord, working woman in the wrong industry. We got kids in here today. Right? Rahab. She's David's grandmother. No, great-grandmother. Ruth, a Moabite woman, a foreigner. Not even a foreigner, an unwelcome foreigner, a cursed one. And here she is in David's lineage. And you go, she's David's grandma. And you go, wow, what's going on here? And then Uriah's wife, he didn't even call her Bathsheba. Do you get the flow here? He's got some people in David's lineage who have eh, iffy background, who've done some eh, strange things, right? And the fifth woman on the list is Mary. And in the ancient world, in her village, I'm sure not everybody bought the idea that she was a virgin when she had Jesus. That is a stretch for a lot of people. Right? So why does he pick these five women? Because they all have something in common. They are all part of David's lineage. They all are not perfect, but God still used them. So even if Mary didn't get it right, you have no rocks to throw. You get it? But I think Mary got it right. And I think she was a pregnant from the Holy Spirit. But it says in Matthew that she was found to be pregnant. And the angel doesn't come to her in Matthew. The angel comes to Joseph and says, Joseph, I know you, you don't believe it, but you need to take on this woman and her son because God is doing something here that you need to be involved in and you need to protect her. That's how the story starts in Matthew. And as we look at that story and we begin to understand what's going on, she, she is the person who is going to be the one who cares for this baby, the, the person who carries this baby, the person who raises this baby. And, and, and you know what an impact moms have. And he says to Joseph, Joseph, you need to save this. She will give birth to a son, and you, have, you will give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now, all this place took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. A couple of things. Jesus is the noun form of save the verb. It's a play on words. Yeshua will yashu, basically. And then he says he's going to fulfill Emmanuel, God with us. He gives us two names. Jesus, God is here. God is with us. That's why I call this series God is here. He's present. He's with us. He comes into the world and shows us. But what does fulfill mean? Well, the next verse in Isaiah says 
that this child that's going to be born from a virgin is going before he will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong from a right before the boy knows enough to reject wrong and choose the right the land of two kings you dread will be laid waste he's given a promise to ahaz that this woman's child will not be more than two or three years old and the kings the kingdoms that you fear ahaz will no longer be in existence which is exactly what happened in 722 you say wait a minute I thought the virgin conceived that's a prediction of Jesus no it's a sign to Ahaz so why is it fulfilled there's two words two ways you can take fulfillment one is precedent here's the precedent the Jewish mind looks to the past and says did God do this before is this how God acts is this out of bounds? Is this something that we can look back and say, yeah, God's involved in that. He's done that before. Look at the story. We can understand it. It's a precedent. And that's what's going on here. Jesus fulfills the precedent. He is the one who, who when they look back, they say, yes, God works that way. Don't you remember what Isaiah said? It's happening again. That's exactly what God's doing. And then come along the Magi, the kings. We don't know how many there are. They're not really kings either. They're wise men. They're Magi. That's what, he, that's what they're called. Don't know really where they came from. says the east. It could be Yemen. It could be Saudi Arabia. It could be Babylon. Don't know for sure. Can't tell. But they come, and they come to Herod, and they say, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews. You got to understand, Herod didn't take that well. Now, he was such a healthy mental guy that within the last six years of his life, he killed his wife and his three favorite sons who were going to be his heirs. He commanded that I think it's four or five hundred rabbis be round up in Israel, and on the day he dies, they would all be killed in the hippodrome in, Jer uh, in Jericho, so that when his anniversary of his death rolls around, there will still be sadness in Israel because everybody's going to be mourning the rabbis because they know, Herod knows, that on his death day it would be a party, not a funeral. So you see how stable the guy is, right? He, he, he doesn't have a sense of grandiosity about him at all. Okay? Uh, they call him Herod the Great, and I think they should put ego behind that. Herod the Great Ego. But as you, as you look at his life, these guys come and say, has been born. Uh-oh, flares go off. His boys were supposed to take over after he dies, not the king who has been born. So he sends them off to find him. This is a picture of Bethlehem, and that is called the Herodium. You can see it today, or part of it. Uh, that's one of Herod's big forts. He may have been even staying there. It's only about two miles from Bethlehem. You can sit in the Herodium and see everything going on in Bethlehem, especially from the watchtower. And so you have this juxtaposition going on between Herod in his palace and, and Jesus in his crib in his manger, 
his swaddling clothes. And the Magi come and, and they begin and, and they begin to look and where do they find him? Matthew says they found him in a house. Now, wait a minute, I thought he was in a manger. And so we have this picture of this kind of shed in our mind. Well, if he's in a house, it may have looked something like this. This is the standard house. It's a four-room house, it's called. The people are all down here. This is the courtyard. The animals are brought in at night to keep everybody warm. This is storage area or an extra room. This is the bedroom upstairs. You see the animals underneath. Why do they do that? Because the animals are their indoor heater during the winter. That's, that's why they bring them in. Plus, they don't want them stolen, especially the, the, the best animals they have. They bring inside because they don't want them stolen. And so they bring them into this courtyard. And it says, then she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in lightly in a cloth, laid him in a manger, because there was no room, no guest room available for them. And sometimes that's translated, no room in the inn. And we think Ramada Inn. And innkeeper. No. Guest room is the place where when your family comes in from out of town, you put them. The place when they got there was full. There was already a guest in the guest room. So where did they take her? Well, they took them back downstairs. How do I know that? Well, because as you look at an ancient house, like here, here's the layout. There's the animal pen. This is the ham family. This is the downstairs. You can probably barely see some of this. This is the guest room upstairs, second store room. It's pretty nice. And between here and here is this. This is the manger. That's where they feed their animals when they bring them in at night. And the manger is between where the people are and where the animals are. And so they were taken into the family space, had the baby, and wrapped the baby and put it in the manger next to the animals in the house, I think. Can't prove that. But archaeologically, it makes sense because that's the way their houses were laid out and that's the kind of people they were. They, they wrapped their arms around family. Family was more important than anything to them. So as you look at it, here's this fulfillment. Here's this gift. Now, wait a minute. The wise men brought gifts, right? Why did they do that? Could it be possible that they brought gifts so that Joseph and Mary and the baby would have traveling money to live in Egypt for a couple of years so they wouldn't get killed? Herod couldn't find them? Yeah, could be. But the real gift on Christmas is the child. Isaiah puts it this way in Isaiah 9. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And the dominion will, will be vast and his, and his prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness now and forever. That's the second way a prophecy is fulfilled. The first is precedent. You look back, did God work this way? The other one is prediction. Prophet says this, and it happens later, right? So you have two elements going on in prophecies and fulfillment. And I want you to see this is a one-to-one. -one. 
This is a prophecy of mighty God, wonderful counselor, eternal father, prince of peace. Those are all titles of Yahweh and only Yahweh. Only God has those titles. And this ruler that's coming, this prince of peace, is going to be a son of God, like David, a king who is going to lead his people and rule them with dominion. And how he uses his authority is going to be vastly different than any king you can read about in the history book. So that sets the stage for the, they go to Egypt, they come back, and they return. And it says, out of Egypt I call my son, that's a quote from Hosea, Having been warmed in a dream, Joseph withdrew to the district of Galilee. He went and lived in a town called Nazareth, and so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. And you go, I don't remember Nazarene in the Old Testament prophets. That's easy. It didn't exist. Nazareth didn't exist before Alexander Janus. So what's going on here? He will be called a Nazarene? What's that mean? Well, Here you've got a little bit of a problem, and I don't want to be really technical, but I want to do point this out. The A-Z-A in Greek doesn't match up well with Hebrew. Hebrew is T-Z, Netzer, T-Z. There's no sound like that in Greek. And so they just put the Z. And so what he's saying is he will be a Netzerine, a branch. Well, where does that come from? Isaiah 11. Then the shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse and a branch, and Netzer from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of Yahweh will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. After Jesus' birth, we don't have anything about him until chapter 3 in Matthew where he comes to be baptized. And what happens at his baptism? The spirit of God comes down upon him the spirit of wisdom and of counsel and of knowledge and fear of God it's all right there right in front of us the early church is trying to tell us what's going on what's happening why is this important why do we need to understand fulfillment why is it that he's pointing back to prophecies and and saying this is he's trying to get us to understand who Jesus is and what he came to do and why he's important That's why. And as you look at this story, John puts it this way. God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. What are they saying? This is a rough quote from Tim Keller, and I want to end with this because I think it wraps it all together. It helps us understand what's going on with Jesus. Why is it so important? The world is not just the product of blind, random forces. Its history is not a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. The meaning of life is not a principle or some other abstract rational structure, but a person, an individual human being who walked the earth. This claim led to a revolution. If Christianity is true, a well-lived life is not found primarily in philosophical contemplation and intellectual pursuits or in wealth and beauty, which would leave out most of the people of the world. Rather, it is found in a person to be encountered in a relationship 
that could be available to anyone, anywhere, of any background. Why did Jesus come as a baby? To show you that he knows everything about you. Everything. God joined our life and lived it from womb to tomb, just like we do. And in that process, he shows us what God created us to be in the first place. He shows us what a real-life human being is supposed to look like, how they're supposed to act, what they're supposed to value. That's why it's called incarnation. God puts in flesh the one who leads us out, Jesus, who will save his people. Emmanuel, God with us. It's not an accident that Luke starts his story with Emmanuel, God with us, in the first chapter and the very last verse of the very last chapter in Matthew is Jesus saying, I am with you always. That's not an accident. Jesus came as a man, a baby, a sacrifice, a role model, a teacher. But most of all, he came to put us back together again as human beings.